15 will be today uh, in verses 18 through 21. If you don't have a Bible, please get one of the black Bibles on the end of each pew, and that Bible should be on page 950, page 950. And if you don't have a Bible for yourself at all, then just take that one. We want you to have a paper copy in your hands in your house of God's Word. I pray that it will bless you. Uh, Romans 15, verses 18 through 21 says this, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. It really seems that uh, God wants to direct our hearts as a church toward missions right now. So uh, I, I just mentioned that uh, my, my plan was that next Sunday would be uh, when we switch over and start talking about some Christmassy kinds of things. And I don't want to make light of Christmassy kinds of things because this is the incarnation of the Son of God into the world. And so that is beautiful and wonderful. And we're going to talk about those things on the 24th and on the 31st. But uh, we were getting ready to, uh, uh, to have, well, we just were doing things in the church office not long ago. We got a call from Jonathan DeSeno. Some of you guys know Jonathan DeSeno personally. He came up here. Uh, and uh, was here for our Northeast Fire Fellowship. Um, Jonathan and his family, uh, are, his wife and his children, are going to go to France next month. Now this was something that was probable, but not yet set, um, but it's now set. And so you, you may remember that Mike Kalinske and I went to France a couple months ago, uh, and we support the McFall missionary family there, Keith and Carmen McFall. Keith and Carmen are, uh, they have set up a residential discipleship program for Christian students in Nantes, uh, which is a city that has 100,000 college students in it. Uh, and they have also planted an English-speaking church in Nantes, because there was no English-speaking church in the city of a million people. And there's lots and lots of English speakers and English-speaking students who come in. So, so they've done that. Keith and Carmen have to go back to the U.S. for a year, starting in February. Um, so this is what you often call a missionary furlough. Uh, they're going back to France, but they have to be away from France for a year. And by God's grace, God has provided Jonathan Seno and his family to go to step into that ministry for that year, and possibly beyond, um, to take over this discipleship program and to be uh, pastoring this church for that, uh, that furlough year. Uh, and so God has really provided for that. But Jonathan called and said, hey, this is certain now. We've bought our plane tickets. We're leaving January 15th. And we've got two Sundays open before we go. And one of them was December 17th. So Jonathan is going to get to be here next week and sharing with us about uh, the mission that God has given him and his family. Um, as they, they had been in Romania for a number of years, and now they'll be in France. And so I'm really looking forward to that. Um, and today, God has directed us to this passage that's about missions. 
And, and all of these missions things keep coming up. And so I just think God wants to direct our hearts today toward the fact that it's not just what's going on in our own homes, in our own lives, in our own hearts, in our own church, even in our own community, or even in our own country that matters to God. But God has a worldwide mission that he engages his people in, that he wants us to be part of that we wouldn't be here if that mission hadn't begun a long, long time ago, and that he calls us to be part of that. And so, as we've come to, to this passage today, um, I'm just reminded of, of Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is, this is a passage I think about all the time uh, when I look around this building, or when we're coming up on the anniversary of our church, or just think about the history of our church. As, as God was bringing the people of Israel into the promised land, he said to them in Deuteronomy 6.10, Great and good cities that you did not build are going to be there for you, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And you will eat and be full. There's all kinds of stuff that, that we could take for granted that God put in place a long time ago through faithful workers for the gospel uh, that, that we get to take part of. Just as the people went into the promised land and there were houses already built there, vineyards already planted. Well, we, we just kind of showed up here. I know for a fact that none of you were part of the planting of this church in 1850. Don't ask me how I know that, but I can tell. Uh, and, and, and yet, here we are. But the reason that, that happened back in 1850 is because there were those who were faithful to say, hey, the mission that God, God has for me involves being sacrificial and doing work such that the gospel is going to spread beyond me and my church. To actually take you know, funds that could have been used for some good purpose in one church and saying, hey, but we're going to go for the better purpose of planting a bulkhead for the gospel in another place called Middletown Point, now called Matawa. It's amazing, and it goes back beyond that. We're, we're here as a church, and established as an institution that we steward, because somebody else built it, and that happened because there was the work of missions to go and do new work among people. It started beyond us, too. Uh, it, it wasn't even just, you know, a church in Keyport planting a church in Madelon. It was that that church was planted by a church in Middletown, which was planted by uh, people who came over from Long Island because they had been persecuted in Massachusetts. And they were there because they'd been persecuted in England. And how did the gospel get to England? Well, it was, it was faithful preachers of the gospel who went over to Britannia all the way back in, in the days of of the Romans, and you go all the way back to the apostles, the reason we're sitting here today, across the ocean, from where Jesus died and was risen from the dead, the reason we're here is because there has been generation after generation of faithful Christians who've taken it seriously what Jesus said in Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and behold, I am with you always. And it doesn't stop with us. This keeps going. This keeps going. I have to, I do have to get to the scripture. Because that's what the sermon is about. It's about the scripture. When we come to this passage in Romans 15, I mentioned last week that we've kind of come to the end of a section within a section and moving toward the conclusion of the letter. And, and part of what Paul is going to talk about in this 
upcoming part is he's going to talk about his travel plans. As he's been on these missionary journeys and he's, he's gone and preached the gospel here and there and all over the place, he's talking about where he wants to go. Why it is that he hasn't yet been to Rome? Why it is that he's only going to spend a short amount of time in Rome when he comes? Or at least that's his plan. Even though Rome is the most important city in the world at the time, he's essentially going to write to these Romans and say, I want to come there, I want to encourage you, but I only want to be there for a little bit because I have more important things to do. That's essentially what he's saying. And why is that? It's because the gospel has more places to go. He needs to get the gospel where it hasn't yet been preached. And so that's what we're going to see here. Let's start in verse 18, if you're following along in the back of your bulletin. We're going to see in verses 18 and 19, Christ's faithfulness to bless past missionary. He says in verse 18, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Now, what is this, what Christ has accomplished through me? Now, Paul has done a lot. Those of you who are familiar with Paul, with the New Testament, with the stories in the book of Acts, you, you, you know that Paul is somebody that, that Jesus reached into his life when he was a blatant sinner and persecutor of the church and, and opposed to Christ, reached in, saved him, turned him around, and made him not just a Christian, but an apostle, and commissioned him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And so Paul took very, very seriously that his life's calling now was to go and to spread the gospel to as many of the Gentile nations as he possibly could. He's gone, he's planted churches, he would plant a church here, spend a number of months or maybe a couple of years with that church getting established, getting elders in place at that church, and then move on to the next church, the next place where there needed to be a church planted. And, and he would do that in this place, in this place, in this place. And just a massive amount of the work of God had been done in the spread of Christianity and the planting of churches in the first century through Paul. But, but what does Paul say about this? Does he say, I am the guy that you need. I, I want to prove that I am amazing at this stuff. No, he says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Now that, that kind of relates back to what we saw in verse 17 last week. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. He's not saying there, I, I really, really want to brag about my work. You know, he's saying, I want to exalt Christ when I consider what it is that God has accomplished in and through my life. I want to say it's Jesus that's done it all. I, 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 you have to admit here, when you, when you see verse 18 about what it is that Christ has accomplished through me, Christ accomplishes an awful lot completely without us. And he could accomplish everything completely without us if he, if he chose to do it that way. There, there is nothing that's outside of God's ability. And Jesus is God. He is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. If we wanted to say, if Jesus had said to Peter, um, I will build my church without you, Peter. He could have said he could have said, I'm going to build my church 
The gates of hell will not prevail against it, and none of you guys are going to have anything to do with it. I'm going to do it all just me with no people involved. He could have done it that but he didn't do it that he, 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 by his grace, by his wisdom, has ordained that the way that he's going to take this glorious gospel of what he did all by himself at the cross and have that spread across the world and have people saved, have churches planted, have people built up in Christ is going to be through these messengers, through these apostles, these evangelists, these Christians who just have a heart to go and tell the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus, I do want to emphasize, Jesus already has done everything for you. There is no work that you're called to do that is going to add to you extra salvation. There is no going and telling the gospel that is going to get you a higher place in God's sight. You are already united to Christ by faith, believe You are already counted righteous in His sight. In fact, it says at the beginning of 2 Peter 2, or 2 Peter 1, that those who have believed have obtained a faith of equal standing with the apostles. Isn't that amazing? No matter what kind of work you do, you're not going to be higher and you're not going to be lower in God's book. You are clothed with Christ. If you're not clothed with Christ, you need to be clothed with Christ. You need to know Jesus has already done the work in full. This sermon, this passage today is not in any way trying to tell you, work harder, tell more people about Jesus so that you can go to heaven. This is saying, because Jesus has already done it all, now, in the freedom that he's given us, we can say, I don't have to treasure the things of this world anymore. I don't have to treasure my sin. I don't have to treasure what my life would have been like without Christ. I'm going to treasure Christ and his mission. I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God, the things of Christ, Trust that he's going to add all these things. But here, here's the thing. Trust first in the, the fact that Jesus paid it all. And now that we know that, we're free to get up and to work for him, for his glory. And when we work, when we do the things that he tells us to do, and that can cover lots and lots of things, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, as Philippians 2.13 says as I told you last week as well. Whether you were talking about being faithful in your home, doing the chores that you have to do, raising your children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord, wives and husbands relating to each other as the Bible tells us to do, whether we're talking about the way that you go about your job, your employment, or your schoolwork, those of you who are not yet in a place of being out in responsibility and having a job, whatever it is that God has given you to do, guess what? It's, it's Christ who works in you. Believer, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And one of the things specifically that he's told us to do, that this passage is about, is to be part of his mission in spreading the gospel beyond ourselves, beyond our churches, 
for the glory of his name among all nations. What we can do in terms of our prayer, in terms of our co-laboring, as the Bible calls it, which means giving financially from the labors that we have done and considering those labors to be something that would help propel the gospel around the world, or whether it's our going personally to other cultures, all of that work, all of the things that can be accomplished through our helping to get the gospel to the nations is something that's going to be accomplished not by us, but by Christ in us. That's why Paul says in verse 18, I'm not going to speak about anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. And what is it that he's accomplished? Well, he has accomplished this idea of bringing the Gentiles to obedience. Bringing the Gentiles to obedience. Now, when he says bringing the Gentiles to obedience, that almost sounds like he's saying to, to have people come to, to, um, to a place where they're right with God because they obeyed the rules. Well, no, that's, that's not what he's talking about. I think what he's referencing there is, is a phrase that he uses two other places in the book of Romans. One is in Romans 1.5, and the other one's in Romans 16.26, where he, he talks about this obedience of faith. That's the kind of obedience that he's talking about, the kind of obedience where, where we as sinners are called to submit to God by believing upon Jesus Christ. When you repent and believe, that's the obedience of faith. That's the obedience that makes it then possible for any other kind of obedience to be pleasing in God's sight, because without faith it is impossible to please God. My kids have been telling me that verse over and over this week. Thank you, by the way, to, to Michael teaching their Sunday school class and having to memorize that. Without faith it's impossible to please God, and so the obedience that this begins with is faith, trust in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, that is my mission, to bring the Gentiles to obedience. These are the same Gentiles, by the way, that he talked about at length in the second half of chapter 1. In the second half of chapter 1, he talks about how for those who are Gentiles, in this, this context he's talking about not just non-Jews, but those who are out there without Christ in the world, those who are pursuing the things of the flesh, the things of false gods, worshiping the creation rather than the creature. He talks there about how the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. He goes on at length about the ways in which they suppress the truth. He's talking about the people who are out there who are bowing down and worshiping idols and maybe even burning their children to try to appease these false gods and to try to make their crops grow better. He's talking about cultures where, where when a husband dies that the wife may be put on his funeral pyre with him to die there and to go to the grave together. He's talking about places where they are committing all kinds of immoral acts that would flow out of their failure to recognize God as the Lord. Women burning with passion toward women, men burning with passion toward men is part of what he lists, part of what we see all around us as well. All of that kind of stuff that is just ugly and disobedient, and where he says that they know that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who do them. He says this is horrific, the ways in which the nations turn away from the Lord 
even left to their own wisdom. It's just a picture of how depraved we are. We don't come into this world good. We come into this world bad. And it plays out in all kinds of ways. But do you know what can overcome that? Do you know what can overcome the darkness? Light. The light of Christ. The light of the gospel. And so what Paul is talking about is as he has gone to these places where everybody was deeply lost in their sin, in their idolatry, in their paganism, that he came and he preached Christ. And as you see in the book of Acts how this went, everywhere he'd do that, if there was a synagogue in that place, he'd start there because there were people who had heard about God a little bit already. And he'd go out in the marketplaces and he'd preach and he'd go to the pagan temple in Athens and he'd preach and say, here's who you are actually supposed to be worshiping. And some of the people there would mock him. Sometimes they'd try to throw him out of town. Sometimes they'd try to kill him. Sometimes they'd stone him and leave him for dead. But he was going to go on preaching the gospel. And you know what? Those whom God had appointed unto eternal life believed. That's what it says in Acts. And so as he went and he preached, there were those that God had known from before the foundation of the world, whose hearts he opened up through that preaching of the gospel. They believed, they came together, meaning they had fellowship and sharing together around the common bond of trust in Christ. And these churches were planted. And these people who were utterly lost in their sin and their rebellion against God we're now coming together as worshipers of God through Jesus Christ. And this beautiful thing of the church was being established. Jesus is building his church, and Paul says all of that, the obedience of the Gentiles, that's Jesus' work. And it is beautiful when we are working and seeing Jesus work through that it's beautiful. And how did he do it? He, he lists three ways that God made this happen. We call this means. Right? God doesn't just take somebody who's never heard the gospel, and then all of a sudden, without hearing the gospel, they are a believer. God just doesn't work that way. He, he, he uses the hearing of the gospel by somebody coming and preaching, that person being sent to do that. That's what we prayed through in Romans 10 a little while ago. That's what he does. And he uses these means. And here's what he says. Paul says, here's how this happened. First of all, by word and deed. Now, word, word is the critical thing. Okay? Without the word, without telling about the gospel, nobody's going to come to Christ. No churches are going to be planted, at least not churches that are churches. There has to be a telling of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone who would be, to Jews first and also to Greeks, it said back in chapter 1. There has to be word, but he says God also used not just the word, but also deed as part of the means to bring the Gentiles to obedience, to bring unbelievers to faith. What does that mean? Deed. Well, it means that part of the way that God helps people to listen to the words that we say is when our actions support those words. Now, can somebody be saved by the preaching of the true gospel from the mouth of a total hypocrite? The answer is yes. Yes, they can. Because it's the gospel that's the power of God and salvation. But do you know how God's usually going to do it? He's going to usually do it through somebody who's preaching the true gospel 
and whose life in their deeds actually reflects that, whose fruit is backing it up. And Paul says this explicitly to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. He's saying, look, you need to have good doctrine. You need to be making sure that you are speaking the truth to people. That's the teaching. You need to have a close watch on that. And you also need to have a close watch on your life. Because those two things together, the Bible says in 1 Timothy 4.16, those two things together are the things that God tends to use to save people. True gospel with a true life to back it up. So he says, by word and deed. And then he says another means that was part of what he was doing in this age of the apostles. He says, by the power of signs and wonders. It's in verse 19. By the power of signs and wonders. Signs and wonders, is it's a common term. It's two words that go together, but they're both talking about the same thing. And what it's talking about is miracles. Paul is saying that as I went around and I was going about my apostolic gospel mission of church planting in the first century as the Bible was being written, God did miracles through me. And he gave me miraculous giftings, and I was able to do things like heal the sick and speak in tongues and all kinds of incredible things that were happening. The Bible says that there were times when people would even take handkerchiefs away from Paul and people would be healed as they came into contact with these handkerchiefs, which is something that is so often copied today by false teachers. So don't fall for it. But you need to know, too, it is real in the first century in the life of Paul in the days of the apostles. This is part of how God was establishing the church. This is why God gave those miraculous giftings in those early days of the church, was to make it plain. These crazy people who were showing up and teaching things that you have never heard of, Jesus and the resurrection, the response in, in Acts 17 in Athens, when they hear about Paul's preaching, they say, what is Jesus? What is the resurrection? What are these strange things that they're teaching? Well, well, part of what God did in those days was he gave these miraculous giftings to Paul and others that would back up. This is not just crazy talk. There is actual supernatural divine power behind this. And they can see those miracles, and that's part of what God used. When he says signs and wonders, the signs indicate the truth that these things pointed to. These weren't miracles just to do something. These weren't just magic tricks to show off. These weren't even just, I'll heal somebody because then I can, you know, put up my doctor sign and have a nice business. No, this was to every single one of these true miracles of God was for the purpose of pointing to the truth of the gospel. That's what Jesus' miracles were all about. People thought maybe that they were all about lots and lots of people having healing. People thought maybe they were lots of, about lots and lots of people having plenty of bread to eat. But Jesus said, I'm the true bread. I am the bread that came down from heaven. And so Paul was doing the same kind of preaching behind those miracles that God was doing through him to say, this is not about the miracle, this is about Christ. Trust in Christ. Wonders indicates the, the miraculous nature of those works, that they were impressive. And we would be amazed if we saw them. 
He says in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, this is part of what he says about his ministry. He says, the signs of a true apostle were being performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So that seems to have been something that God did in those days to establish the truth of the gospel. In those early days of the planting of the church, in those days when the Bible was not yet completed, just to back up, here is the truth. What's interesting about that, though, some people would read that and they would say, well, therefore, we need to engage in what they call power evangelism. If this is what Paul did, then this is what we need to do. We need, we need to try to find somebody who's miraculously gifted and so that they can go out there and do these signs and wonders with the power of the Holy Spirit, and therefore, people will be brought in by witnessing that power. Well, that's... Jesus, who worked lots and lots of miracles, who actually rose from the dead and is alive today, do you know what Jesus said about that in Luke 16? He said, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, that means if they won't listen to the words of the Bible, they would not believe even if someone were raised from the dead. Jesus had a plan for these miracles. Jesus performed these miracles. Jesus miraculously gifted Paul and others in the first century for the establishment of the church. But he also, along with that, said, this is never actually going to be the thing that saves anyone. It's going to be the word, that very first thing he said, the word that saves people. With deeds and some other things backing it up as well. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 2, it already starts to speak there of these miraculous gifts as being something of the past. Even as the Bible is still being written, as you're getting toward the end of the first century, Hebrews 2 verses 3 and 4 says that this great salvation was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, that's the apostles, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So that tells us there in Hebrews 2, 3, and 4, this is why God did this. So that the message of the apostles, which is the message of Christ that they were commissioned to bring and to deliver, could be established. And even by the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, it's already spoken of as a thing of the past. But it is something that God used as part of his means to build his church and we should praise and thank God for that. Another thing that he says, he says, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, and he says, by the power of the Spirit of God. Now this is not just one thing in the list, this is summing it all up. This is saying, this is how it has really happened. It's by the power of the Spirit of God. It's not by the power of Paul. It's not by the power of you or me. By the power of fill-in-the-blank, greatest preacher you've ever heard or by the power of some massive church institution. This is by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how God does his work. The example of this, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5. Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, We know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what he's saying? He's saying when people come to faith in Jesus, 
when people believe the gospel, when people start demonstrating the fruit of repentance of sin and faith in, in Christ, their new treasure and Lord, that is a beautiful, powerful testimony of the work of the Holy Spirit, because it doesn't come from anywhere else. It doesn't come through the efforts of man to try to build a revival. It, it doesn't come through what some person could do to try to reform their lives. This is a work purely and 100% of the Holy Spirit God, who's able to take a dead heart and make it alive. Who's able to take a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Who's able to take somebody on the road to Damascus on his way to kill anybody who would proclaim that Christ is Lord and cause him to say, Christ is Lord. That is the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why you can say later on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. He says that's what it looks like, that the power of the Holy Spirit came with full conviction that you've now accepted the gospel as what it really is, the word of God. That is only what the Spirit. That's why Jesus says you must be born again. You must be born of the flesh and the Spirit. So he can say, wherever I've gone, however I've preached, when the churches have been planted, when people have come to faith in Jesus, when the Gentiles have come to the obedience of faith, wherever that's happened, it's not me. It's Christ working through me. It is the power of the Holy Spirit. Where has this happened already? He says in the second half of verse 19, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So he says, he's kind of saying, here's, what, here's where I've been so far. He's, he's going to tell them some travel plans and where he plans to go. But he says, from Jerusalem, I don't know if you can picture the Mediterranean Sea. I'm not, I'm not typically one to bring visual aids with me to the pulpit. Uh, but if you can picture the Mediterranean Sea, it's this... You know, it's this almost rectangular body of water. And you got Jerusalem over here, and Illyricum is up over here. It's where modern-day Croatia is. It's across the Adriatic Sea from Italy, to the right of the boot. Okay. And, and so he's saying all the way from here, up this way, all the way around, past Greece, all the way over here. I've preached the gospel, and I've fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. He's saying, I've done what God has called me to do in all of these regions, all the way around this northeastern section of the Mediterranean Sea. I've done all this work. We've planted churches here, we've planted churches there. It doesn't mean he's planted churches in every place where churches could possibly be planted. You know, his, his, his tendency was, we're going to go to the main city in this area, and we're going to make sure a church is established there. And that they can go and then preach the gospel and establish other churches. We're going to go on here, we're going to plant a church there, etc., etc. And saying, I, I did that all the way up to this region called Illyricum. Now, we don't know if he actually planted a church inside that region. There's no record of that, but it could be. Or if he just means I came up to the border of it. But what he's saying is, you know, Illyricum is almost all the way to Italy. And that's where you guys are there in Rome. But you've already got a church. And, and, and so that's kind of covered in a way. You guys have a church. You're, you're able to reach your nation. 
And I, and I want to get going past you. That's what he's going to say. I know you're the most important city in the world, but I've done all this work leading up to you, and you've got the work going on there already, and i got a lot to do on the other side. Now, God is sovereign over those plans. God, God didn't necessarily let Paul go everywhere that he and his plans had hoped to go. But the point is here, I've fulfilled my ministry there, but I have something else to do. I have somewhere else to go. But as I go, what I'm going to be doing is the same thing. I'm going to be fulfilling the ministry of the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ. He's already said word, indeed. He's already talked about the fact that he's doing this, but I just want to emphasize, this is the mission. To fulfill the ministry of the gospel of Christ. There's lots of things that can go together with that. There's lots of compassion that needs to be had upon the poor and the sick and the hungry and the hurting and all of those places. But the mission, central mission, is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said back in Romans chapter 1, the very beginning of it, he said that he, he came to preach the gospel of God. God's gospel, which he calls here the gospel of Christ, which means it's about Jesus. He says that this gospel of God was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures that it is concerning his son. He says this is what the gospel is about. It's about Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel is about Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his lordship over all things. The gospel is about this, what he said earlier in Romans 3, verse 20, that by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned, by the way, insert your name there, that's you, that's me. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by works. No, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a wrath-satisfying sacrifice by his blood, to be received by faith. That's the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that you must believe, and the gospel that we're commissioned to spread, just as Paul was going to spread. What Paul says about this is that he has an eager ambition to reach those who are still unreached. He's talked about in these first couple of verses, 18 and 19, that he has done a lot of mission work that God has blessed it, that Christ has worked through him, that all these churches have been planted in all these places. He praises God for that, but now he says, there's still more to be done. We need to have that attitude. We need to say, yes, there's a lot that's been done. <coughs> it seems like there's churches all over the place. Boy, there's a lot still to go. Even today, even 2,000 years later. Here's what he says in verse 20. And thus... I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. 
Now, he makes it his ambition to preach the gospel, and I hope it's your ambition to preach the gospel. Believer in Jesus Christ, did you know that it's your commission to preach the gospel? I don't mean that it's your calling to be a pastor. Some of you, maybe that, that may be the case. I don't mean that it's your calling to be a street preacher. Some of you, that, that may be the case. But all of us, God would have us to embrace the gospel as what it is, which is not just something that's nice that we can be forgiven, but it's good news. If it's good news that we've received, it's also good news that we are to tell. It's the way that people can be saved. It's the way that your children can be saved. Your grandchildren can be saved. Your co-workers. The, the, the people that God puts into your life through the circumstances that seem random and coincidental to you. It, it, it's, it, it is our task to be jars of clay that have a treasure in us that is the gospel and to treat that treasure as good news. And even though we're not worthy to spread it, that's what he's told us to do. And so he says, it is my ambition to preach the gospel, and that is every Christian's commission to preach the gospel, to go and to make disciples. Now some Christians, every Christian needs to be a preacher of the gospel, but some Christians have a gifting and calling to what is called missions. Missions. And by that, I mean cross-cultural missions. He says here, it's my ambition to preach not where Christ has already been made, unless I build on someone else's foundation. Some of you, God may call to missions. He may call you to do what, I mean, the kind of work that Paul was doing. I don't mean being an apostle. The apostles were a one-time thing, but the mission of going to other cultures where Christ has not been named, we're going across cultural barriers to see churches planted, to see the gospel preached. That's missions work. Missions, and I'll tell you this definition of missions. Missions is the preaching of the gospel and the building of churches across cultural or geographical boundaries. Now, I, I, I said something in the prayer earlier that I wish I hadn't said. I, I, I still want to pray the sentiment of it that I meant. But I said in the prayer, help us to be missionaries to our own nation, our own community. We do need to be gospel preachers. We need to be evangelists in our own community. But the term missionary, the, the mission part of that has to do with actually crossing boundaries to do it. We don't have to be missionaries in our own communities. We just need to be evangelistically minded in our own communities. We need to be about the mission of God in our own communities. But we also need to recognize there are some who are commissioned to be missionaries, to cross a boundary to another culture, to learn another language, to go to another country in order to spread the gospel in a place where the gospel would not have been spread had they not made that decision and been sent by church to go. Do you see the difference there? Some of you are squirming because you don't know what I'm telling you that you're not a missionary. Well, you need to know maybe God would call some of you to be missionaries. 
Maybe God will call some of your children to be missionaries. Maybe God will call some of my children to be missionaries. Some of our grandchildren. And that, that can be a thing where we say to ourselves, I, you know what, I know people over there need Jesus, but I want to keep my family here. I get that. I get that. But do you know what God does sometimes? He raises up people with the gifts and calling that would well qualify them to be elders of a church and yet lays on their hearts and makes clear to the church that would have appointed them as an elder that this is someone that could be sent out in order to reach a place that wouldn't otherwise be reached. That's what it looks like to send the mission. That's what it looked like when Paul and Barnabas were first commissioned as missionaries by the church at Antioch. I'll read you this. Acts 13, verses 1 through 3. There were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. They had five elders that were there in that church. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, also called Paul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. They sent off two of their five elders to go and to preach the gospel and to plant churches beyond. That's the kind of thing that it looks like for a church to send a missionary. Now I say God may call some of you to be missionaries. I'm not just talking about sort of like an internal feeling like, oh, I'm, I'm really awkward here in America. So maybe if I go to another culture where they think that I'm weird just because I'm from America, maybe then I can do better. And so maybe that's why I'm called to be a missionary. Or maybe just sort of a feeling like I get that missions is important, and so I really, really am enthusiastic about it, and so I must be called to missions. Well, there has to be that internal desire, but there also has to be a recognition from the church that this is a person who is well qualified, who meets the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 for eldership, that we can then entrust the gospel into his hands so that he can go and then plant a church somewhere if the Lord opens the door for him to do that in that place where he was sent out. But God may do that with you. God may do that with your children. And God did do that with Paul. And in fact, within missions, there are some who have a special commission burden to go not just across cultural boundaries, but to go to places where people are completely unreached. That's what Paul says. I want to go where Christ has not been named. I don't want to build on somebody else's foundation. He says, Rome, you're the most important city in the world, but you've already got a church, and I want to go to Spain, because nobody's ever said the name Jesus in Spain. That's what he's going to say. They have now, but guys, this, this is continuing to be the case. There are unreached people. There, there is a website called the Joshua Project. You might want to write that down. Sometimes it's in your prayer list, but write it down. Joshua Project and you can go there and you can see that out of the people groups in the world, and by people groups we're talking about people who have a culture and a language together and are on one side of a, uh, a border together. In, in the people groups of the world, there are 17,286 people groups. Out of those, 7,250 of those groups are unreached with the gospel. The percentage of the world's population that is in unreached people groups 
41% of the world, 41.9. That means right now there's 3.4 billion people in the world who live among people groups that are unreached with the gospel. That's a lot of people who right now, if they died, would righteously suffer under the wrath of God in hell forever. And will have no opportunity to be saved, except that someone would be sent and go and tell them the gospel. That's how God's going to do it. Within those unreached people groups, 4,848 of them are called frontier people groups. Frontier people groups are, are groups where there are virtually no followers of Jesus, no known movements of the gospel, and where it, there is essentially no chance that anybody's going to hear the gospel except for cross-cultural workers coming and preaching the gospel. They need it. Like I said, not every Christian needs to be a missionary. We need many Christians to do exactly what Paul said was not his calling, to build on another's foundation. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about how noble of a task it is to build on a foundation of a church that is already there, and that we should do that well with gold and silver and precious stones. He talks about how noble that is, but he also says there need to be some who go and lay a new foundation among the new people where Christ has not yet been named, and tell them about Jesus. We're thankful for the Javello family that's doing that. We're thankful for the C family that's doing that. And we thank, are thankful for other missionaries that we know and support who are preaching the gospel in places where Christ has been named, but the work is extremely important and necessary across culture. Paul's commission was to do this. His desire was to do this. And he says in verse 21 that he's doing this as it is written. As it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, those who have never heard will understand. That's quoting from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 15. He says in that same verse that he shall sprinkle many nations. He's going to clean up people from every tribe and tongue and nation. He's going to do it through this gospel preaching. This was God's mission all along, all the way back in Genesis 12 said that Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He said in Psalm 22 that the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. He said in Psalm 86 that the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. He said in Habakkuk 2.14 that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Jesus himself said to his disciples, that this was part of a mission of God that was expressed all over the Old Testament all along because he opened their ears and opened their minds to understand those Old Testament scriptures and said, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. But how is this going to happen? How is this mighty mission of God for his name to be glorified among all nations, this mission for him, his, his glory to be known across the whole world as the waters cover the sea, how's that going to happen? Well, it's going to happen through regular Christians living mundane lives 
recognizing that God can use vessels like us to get the gospel to the nations. We can pray, we can give, and maybe God would have you to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you to do. Just remind you where we started out. We wouldn't be here today. We would not be worshiping together in Madawan, New Jersey today if it hadn't been for this mission that started with the apostles and continued beyond them. We wouldn't be here if there hadn't been generation after generation that had done this, and the mission is not finished today. And we need to pray that God would send out workers in this field that's right for hearts. Let's pray. God, we thank you for, Lord, for, for saving us through the preaching of the gospel. Each one of us who believe are those who have heard because someone was faithful to tell what someone had faithfully told them before. God, we pray that the gospel would spread in our community, in our uh, area, and in our nation. Help us to be faithful evangelists. God, I pray also that you would raise up more and more faithful missionaries to cross over those cultural, linguistic, geographical boundaries in order to spread the gospel to people who would not be saved unless they were saved. Father, I pray for those who, may, maybe they're even here. God, maybe by your grace you have put lost souls in our worship service today so that we didn't have to do a bit of missions to reach them. You just brought them in. We thank you for that. And I pray that you would show them the amazing mercy that has already been poured out just in allowing them to be here in a place where the gospel is already preached. And I pray that you break their hearts over their sin and over the sacrifice of Christ for that sin. And I pray that you would let the preaching of the gospel be effective to them so that they would receive it and receive Christ as their Savior. And God, I pray that you would raise up more and more of us who believe to go and tell uh, or to go to places where they may not even be able to advertise the ways in which they have seen you work because of the security threats that would be involved in that. But God, those people need to hear about Christ. So Lord, I pray that you would make us a sending church, and we pray that you'd raise up more workers for your field that's right for ours. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.